Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We had a really enjoyable night last night here at the church. So congrats to the Bocek and O'Malley families, the marriage of Marcus tomorrow. It was a really, really, really fun time. Uh, so congrats to them. And for all of you who did a lot of work to make it happen, thanks. Um, Mark and Amber also been moving and lots of you have been helping with that. Thank you for that. It's really good to be part of God's family and this church in particular. And so um, maybe, you know, the marriage itself was really enjoyable. Seeing Catherine dance last night and having so much fun was really, really a blast. And so it was a good time. Okay, so we are, um, we just finished Galatians. Praise God. So for those of you who tell me I don't finish the sermon series that I start, we're going to start a new one today. We're in our Advent series. Today doesn't actually begin Advent. That'll be next Sunday, but we're going to start our Advent series. And I'm going to do it. We're going to do five sermons out of John's Gospel where John makes these explicit statements that explain to us why Jesus came to earth. Um, We're going to have five sermons. I'm going to preach the first two and the last two, and Jonathan Brew, one of our elders, is going to preach the middle one. So five statements plainly telling us why Jesus came. Now, John's gospel, I'm also going to do a series in John's gospel beginning next spring, God willing. So this will be kind of a preview to some of that. John's gospel has two parts to it. Basically, the first 11 chapters are all about the miracles and the signs declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the promised Savior. And then in chap- at the end of chapter 11, middle of chapter 12, you have this turn where those first 11 and a half chapters covers three years. The last, uh, what is that, eight and a half chapters covers a week. It slows way down and focuses on Christ's death, really the greatest miracle. His death and resurrection for our salvation. And within those miracles, you have these statements, these purpose statements. John alone really does this. He just simply declares, very straightforward, this is the reason for which Jesus came. And since it's Advent and we're talking about Jesus' coming, that's what we're going to do. So we have two texts this morning, uh, John 12, 27 to 30, and John 17, 1 to 5. So the Gospel of John, New Testament, fourth book in the New Testament. If you turn there with me to John chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 27. So John chapter 12, they said, Mark's a turn in John's gospel. If you look at John 12, 12, the heading above it, what does yours say, kids? Look at the heading above chapter 12, verse 12. Any kids out there? What what does the heading say in your Bible? Anybody under 70? Yeah, the triumphal entry. Uh, So here we are. Jesus is in Bethany. He's about to enter Jerusalem. And so we're dealing with Palm Sunday to Easter in these last chapters. So that's where we are. And we're going to see two statements in these verses, 12, 27 to 30, 17, 1 to 5, that Jesus came to die to glorify his Father. So that's the first purpose. Jesus came. He was incarnate. 
He, God took on flesh in order to glorify his father. So let me read these verses. Here's 12, 27 to 30. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now if you flip over to John 17, 1 to 5. John 17, 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, so he's praying here, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's ask God's help. Father, you alone are our hiding place, our shield. We hope in your word. Hold us up that we might be safe until the day that we enter your presence through faith in Christ. And so please strengthen us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's discuss Advent for a second. Pastor Jeff introduced it. Let me just go a bit deeper. The term Advent, now you've heard this word used in something like It was the advent of the personal computer or something like that, right? Or the advent of the smartphone. These are a word that usually describes the coming of something that has really big world-changing significance. So the term advent means something coming on the scene, something arriving. And in what we're talking about today, we're talking about the coming of the Son of God. The Latin term where we get our English term advent, adventus, is a translation from the Greek term that you might be familiar with, parousia. Anybody heard that word before? Parousia, maybe? Have you heard that word before? No? If so, what what does it usually describe? Anybody? Jeepers. Oh, for 2. Usually, we use it to describe the second coming of Jesus. It, it looks at Christ's return, his second advent, if you will. So when the early church began to set up the church, they included a Christian calendar, and by the third century, part of that calendar was this Advent celebration that began the fourth Sunday before Christmas. And they actually did some dating and think that Jesus was born around December 25th. So this isn't like a shot in the dark or anything. And the four Sundays before that are Advent, where we celebrate the coming of Christ. Now, From what we see in the early church, the first two Sundays of Advent were looking forward to a second coming, and the the third and fourth Sundays before Christmas were looking, reminding of his first coming. But we just do it all about his first coming. So that's what we're looking at. So what do we believe about Christ's Advent? What do we believe about his coming? Well, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he has been, is, and always will be the Very God of very God, to use the word of the Nicene Creed. He is God. He's not part God. He's not like a created being who's more like God than like us. He's not just 
an appearance of God in a different form, but he's not actually a distinct person. No, he is in himself a being, the Son of God, who is eternally and forever God of very God. He is God. And at a point in time, this second member of Trinity, the Son of God, was conceived in the womb of a woman. He took up residence, the Son of God, this eternal, divine, infinite creator of all worlds, was conceived within a virgin named Mary by the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe. We believe it because God has revealed it to us in His Word, which is without error. It was prophesied before that this is what would happen, that the virgin would be with child. So we believe that He came down from heaven, was incarnate. That is, He added to His divinity humanity. That's what the word incarnate means. The incarnation is God became man. The eternal God, the finite, or the infinite, took on the finite flesh. He took on bones and blood vessels and organs and all that we are, He became. And so He is fully God and fully man. And He did this for a purpose. And that's what we're looking at the next five weeks. What are the purposes that the Son of God would do that? Why would He do that? And the hope is to encourage you to see Jesus. Look back at chapter 12. Before what I read, you have the triumphal entry. After the triumphal entry, you have in verse 20, another heading. Can any kid tell me this heading? Calvin, do you have your Bible open to John chapter 12? Are you finding it? Does anybody who's under 12 have their Bible open to John chapter 12? All right, I see a hand there. Well, I can't call on you. You're my kid. All right, there we go. Nora. All right, Nora, in John chapter 12, verse 20, do you see it there? What's the heading above it? Great. Some Greeks seek Jesus. This is incredible because... Jesus was a Jew. Jews and Gentiles don't associate, but at his triumphal entry, some non-Jewish seekers of God are seeking Jesus. And look what they say in verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't that of something? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's what I hope is the outcome of these Advent sermons, that you would wish to see Jesus. That's it. That's enough for us. And hopefully by looking at these five purpose statements of his coming, that would make you want to see Jesus more. I don't mean that you would die and go to heaven only, but that you on earth by faith would see him more fully and and quit living as if he isn't a, a being. You know, like that he would enter into your brain frequently and you would wish to know Him more and experience Him more and find more comfort and, and, and hatred of your sin more that you would want to see Him more. That you would not live as a Christian in name only, but in life. That's what I hope is the outcome of this. So, 
five purposes in John of Jesus coming today to glorify the God, God the Father. The other ones we're going to look at, save the world, to judge, to testify the truth, to give eternal life. But today, he came to glorify the trouble. Now, both of these texts happen in the last week of his life, just before his betrayal, arrest, beatings, mockings, crucifixion, just before his suffering. And he says in chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. In chapter 17, he's praying. He lifts his eyes to heaven. Why? Because where else is he going to get help from? There's no other help for him. We know that he came. He took on flesh. He was incarnate in order to die in our place for our sins. And there he is, right there at the end. The purpose for which he came, he said in John chapter 12, 27, But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Jesus didn't come to live a princely life. He was a man of sorrows. And John, or it it was told beforehand in Isaiah 53, he would be acquainted with suffering throughout his life, culminating in his arrest, trial, crucifixion. And he's saying, for this purpose, I have come. And at the heart of this purpose is that you, my father, might be glorified. But he's troubled. It's suffering. So don't think that seeking God's glory will spare you from trouble. This is something we often get confused. Jesus did receive great glory. Glory that's above all others. His name is above all other names. He is raised to the highest place of glory and honor above all others. After the cross. Not before. In this world, you will have a lot of junk, a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, misery. It's through that that God is glorified. So Jesus is troubled and he's seeking the glory of God. And so it's at the time of his impending death on the cross that he is explaining very clearly why he took on flesh. Father, glorify your name. 12, 28, 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. What do those words mean? Glory and glorify. What does the word glory mean? Well, one way we could get at it is the opposite. What's the opposite of glory? Shame. You ever had anybody say to you, you should be ashamed of yourself? Now, in our day, that's something we think we shouldn't say anymore, but it it is appropriate. I was thinking of the wedding yesterday. You get kids all dressed up and, you know, then you got to keep them from anything that might dirty them. I could see a mom whose kid goes and plays in the mud after getting all gussied up, like, son, ah, should be ashamed of yourself or something. Maybe that's too harsh there, but you get it. He's the opposite of glory. Of course, we usually use it when we're talking about somebody who has done something outrageous, scandalous. It's shameful. It's the opposite of the good. It's the denial of the beauty and the glory that should be, and so we call that shame. 
The opposite of shame then is glory. The wedding yesterday, it's the bride in her dress. It's glory. It's something you behold. It's a beauty. It's a wonder. It's a joy. The Bible says that a woman's hair is her glory. Every, every guy gets that. A sprinter blazing down the track seeming to fly is glorious. A sunrise is glorious. The first snow is glorious. Seeing the full moon out last night, it was glorious. It's something you behold. It's something you enjoy. It's something that elicits delight and awe and praise. You want to share it. You want to go public. You want others to be gathered into your enjoyment of it. The glory is something that somebody has or something that somebody does that reflects well on his or her nature or being or character. To glorify that then is to observe it, to enjoy it, to delight in it, to praise it, to spread it. Uh, people are decorating for Christmas. You go drive around and see some of them. Some of them you'll exclaim, wow, that's awesome, beautiful. There's a glory there, and you're glorifying it. Pastor Mark and Amber sang a song at the wedding yesterday. It was beautiful. That's a glory, and we could glory in it. We could glorify it. So here's what Jesus is saying. He came to earth, took on flesh, came to die, and that was for the purpose of glorifying the glory of the Father. The Father has a glory. The Father's nature, His being, His character is of a certain kind. And the Son did all that He did in order for us to see and behold and savor and delight in and rejoice in and spread the truth of how great and awesome and wonderful God the Father is. That's why the Son came to do all that. That's what we're seeing. Why does that matter? Do you know that you were supposed to do that? You and I were created to glorify God. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. Kids, where in the Bible could you go turn to to read that you were created in God's image? Do you know? Genesis. Anybody know what chapter? Nolan? Chapter 1. Right, Genesis 1. God created us in His image. Now, it is true that all of creation displays the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. But we are above that even. We are commanded not to make any idols, right? There's two reasons for that. One, you and I can't make something physically that elevates God's glory. It would reduce it. You can't make something visible of the invisible. But secondly, is because God did. You You've been put on this earth exclusively and uniquely as that which images forth God, glorifies the glory of God, displays the glory of God uniquely in a way that nothing else does. You were made to do that. We are in us the highest place of density to declare to each other the glory of God. So Adam, in his masculine strength with his purpose and mission to rule over the earth, to fill and subdue it, was given that high calling to glorify God. That God's glory would be seen in Adam's 
masculine strength and husbanding and fathering and working. That his being, his working would glorify the Father in obedience to him. And Eve, too, in her feminine beauty and her feminine glory with her mission to be a helper fit for her husband, to aid him in this mission to fill the earth and to do it and bearing and raising children, to make and keep a home, was given that high calling to glorify God the Father in her faithful dependence on His Word of fulfilling this unique calling in all of creation. It was so that something of God's glory would be seen in her working and she uniquely, along with her husband Adam, would glorify the Father. And we have this privilege highly above anything else in all creation. You and I, we have great purpose on this earth. Incredible purpose. Highest purpose that could be given to any creature. Angels don't even have this to the degree that we have this, the unique way that we have this. You and I. This is why we hear at every wedding, uh, Ephesians 5, that there is a display happening of Christ's love for His church in a husband and a wife. It's going right back to Genesis 1 and saying they were uniquely in this union made to glorify something about the glory of the Father. Nothing else in creation does this. We have this privilege. And you know what? We refused it. We despised it. It wasn't enough for us. It wasn't enough to be these unique, high pinnacle of God's creation to glorify Him. We wanted His glory. That's what it said. They wanted to be like God. Adam wasn't content with his rule on earth. He wasn't content with a wife. He wasn't content with his calling. He wanted more. Eve wasn't content with listening to her husband and following her husband. She wasn't content with her femininity and her calling to be his helper. She wanted more. They weren't content with the voice of God, the Word of God. They wanted another voice that more aligned with their desires. This is how awful it is. So they denied God His glory. They would not glorify the glory of God. You too, right? Now, do you think God is right to demand justice for our denial of His glory? Is God right to demand justice for our dishonoring His holy name? Is He right to say that you refuse to glorify me, you will surely die. Husband, if your wife disrespects and undermines your authority in front of your children, what do you demand? Justice, right? It enrages you. Mom, what do you demand when your children disrespect and get all mouthy with you? What do you want your husband to do? Set it right. You want justice. They have denied you your glory. Friend, what do you demand when you learn that somebody has been talking about you behind your back and betraying you and harming your reputation? What do you demand? That they make it right. How much more God? All of our wrong against each other committed against equals. We have sinned against God. We have denied Him what He made us for. We do it all the time. Now, it isn't that we can reduce God's glory or steal it. It's, 
We don't affect him in that way. And yet he made us for this purpose. And we refuse to honor him in that purpose and bring him the glory that he is actually due. We get enraged when somebody who's just like us does something that we consider wrong. How much more God? Now the problem with you and I is that we disbelieve the truth in the Bible of how awful, wicked crime it is to deny God the glory that he is due. We don't think it's that big of a deal. You cannot be convinced that you are that bad. I mean, you can be convinced that other people are that bad, but not you. That's our greatest problem. That's why so many churches refuse to preach the law of God anymore. Because it so offends people and people don't want to go to those churches anymore. And so to appease people, to keep people coming, they don't talk about the law anymore. They just talk about how nice God is and how gracious God is. And you just need to believe that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But we are awful people. I don't think you really understand the doctrine of sin in the Bible until you learn to absolutely distrust yourself. When you think that you have the right motive and the goodness inside of you and you don't distrust yourself, you don't have a clue yet. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 7, doesn't he? Who will save me from this body of death? He's looking at himself and all he sees is distrust of himself and needing a rescue from himself. What he means is, he in himself, in his sinful self, is given to glorifying not God, but himself. That's all he wants. You know that all I want in the preaching is for you to glorify me? That's all I want. I don't care about God's glory in myself. I really don't. As long as you keep coming and keep telling me I'm a good job, I could give a rip less in myself if God gets any glory. That's honest, isn't it? And you're no better than I am. Do you distrust yourself? Husbands, wives, are you, are, you glor- are you committed to the glory of God, to glorifying God in your husbanding and in your wifing? Father, mother, are you committed for your children to glorifying, honoring God and raising them or to your own peace and ease and comfort and quiet? Which is it that dominates your thinking and your heart? You not see how awful this crime is? Now, I know it's Christmas and you shouldn't talk like that at Christmas. Well, you will not see the glory of what Jesus did unless you see this. He has a specific meaning when he says, I came to glorify the Father. And unless you understand that it was you who were created to do this and you refused and what a crime that was, and that Jesus came to take your place in doing it, you'll never get the glory of the Son that glorifies the Father. You'll never get it. It'll remain distant to you. You'll say you're a Christian. You'll say you love Jesus, but you don't because you don't believe that He took your place, and that's a massive and amazing reality. You get what I'm saying? Do you distrust yourself? Do you agree with Paul that when you look at yourself that there is nothing but a body of death that you need to be saved from? Do you believe that you have offended your Creator and that all you in yourself deserve is His everlasting enmity? Well, who's going to glorify His justice? Who's going to satisfy His justice and display His love at the same time for people like you? Who would do that? Would you do that? Would you? 
You wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it for you. I'd do it for me. And not only wouldn't you, you couldn't. Only Jesus can. This is what it means. So all of our gossip, all of our anxiousness and worry and fretting and distrust of God, all of our rebellion against Father and Mother, all of our greed and lust and fornicating and cohabiting, all of our refusal to help others, all of our neglect of tithing, all of our working on the Sabbath and not keeping this day holy, is a denial of the glory of the Father, the denial of the purpose for which you made. And so can't he require justice for this insult? He's infinite and perfect. Doesn't your crime reach to an infinite and awful height? Well, the Son came to do what you and I refused. He came to glorify the Father. He came to give the Father the glory that He was due. Specifically, the glory that the Father is due His honor for our sin against it and paying the price that His glorious justice demands. You get this? This is not just some general glory. It's a specific glory. It's a specific glory. He is so jealous for the honor of his father that he couldn't stand his father's honor not being honored by us. So he came to rectify that. He came to pay the price to glorify the Father's honor. You get this? You have dishonored the Father. He came to set it right. Kids, have you ever seen somebody dishonoring your Father? It should make you angry. It, should, it is the worst thing for a kid to speak negatively about his father and mother. That's a bad thing. But if you ever hear somebody else speaking negatively of your father and mother, you should have a duty to uphold the honor of your father and mother and defend him or her. I mean, almost even if they're wrong. There should be this impulse in you that you'll never speak about my dad or mom like that, ever. We'll never be friends if you talk about my dad or mom like that. It's the same way in the church. We will not stand for somebody to dishonor our leaders in our church. We will not stand for it. We will listen to it. How much more the eternal Son of God for His Father. So, Jesus took our place. He took our place in glorifying the Father because we didn't. We robbed it. We stole it. We continued to. We all fall short of the glory of God, right? The Son didn't. The Father required blood. The Father required our death to satisfy His holy and just wrath. The Son came to glorify the Father's justice and satisfy its demands. The eternal Son of God alone is both willing and able to do this. No other angel, no other being, no other person can redeem you from your dishonor and the wrath of God but God's only perfect Son who is both God and man. That glorifies the Father's justice. Second, Jesus came to glorify the Father in His justice first, and His second, by fulfilling the will 
and command of the Father to do this for us. This displays the Father's love. Look at some verses here. Look at again 12.27. Father, save me from this hour. Then what does it say? But for this purpose. Whose purpose? Whose purpose was this? The Father's. It was the Father's purpose to bring His Son to this hour. Turn to chapter 17 again. Isn't this good? Look at chapter 17, verse 2. You, Father, have given Him, Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? All whom you have given Him. Whose will is it? To not destroy us for our sin, but to destroy His Son so that we might have eternal life to those whom the Father has given to Him. It's the Father's will. The Son came to glorify the Father's will, to do the Father's will, to fulfill obedience to the Father of His love, to promise salvation and not destroy us for our dishonoring of Him, but destroy His Son in our place that we might receive eternal life. That's what it means for the Son to glorify the Father, to glorify His justice, and to glorify Him in His loving promise of covenant to redeem us from our dishonoring of Him by putting our sin on His Son and putting His Son's righteousness on us so that we can be brought to Him. Now, don't go all brainio on verse 2. It is a hard thing to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Just delight in it. Would you please? Do you stand in, I don't know, accusation or questioning over God and how He decided to save us rebels? I mean, could we be any prouder at that point than just to go, thank you? Even if it was just one that God the Father chose to send His Son to die for, the rest of us would have no complaint there. But he's not going to save one, he's going to save billions. That he chose in love before the foundation of the world to send his son to die for, to redeem his glory and our lives unto him. This is meant to comfort you, to fill you with wonder, to glorify God. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What's the work? to be our mediator, to be the one who would redeem us from our dishonoring of the Father and pay His just penalty and bring us to Him as if we've never done anything wrong but always honored Him like He has. So the Son glorifies the Father's justice and love. This is what it means that the Son may glorify you. Only the Son could do this. So the Son says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Only the Son could accomplish this for you. We were created at a very high place of dignity and honor to bring glory to the Father in a way that no other being in the universe could. And we refused. So the Father sent His Son to do what you and I refused so that we could be welcomed to Him again. That glorifies Him. Doesn't it? Do you love Him? Brothers, men, do you have a loyalty to God the Father that you cannot stand seeing Him dishonored? 
of love. Sisters, do you love God the Father in yourself such that you are living your life for his honor? That's what it means to love him. Do you? Now the son, it says, in verse 5, wants to enter into this glory, which is his death. This is not a pleasant thing. This wasn't like a, a nice trip. Glorify me. And he wants to go through it for a purpose, to be glorified in God's presence with the glory that he had before the world existed. So the son's highest goal wasn't merely our salvation. It was to accomplish the work so that he could return to the glory in the presence of the Father. Okay, if you were to send one of your sons to war, why would he go? Why should he go? What's the purpose for which he goes? It's to fight, to defend the families and the homeland so that he can come home. But you know what happens if a guy who is of fighting age refuses to do his duty? What do you think of him? Coward. Loveless to his family and to his community and to his state and to his nation. He loses dignity. The son is not like that. The son was willing to do the work that the father had given him, and he did it so that he could return home to glory. That was his greatest purpose. Now, I wanted to bring that up because that shows you how wondrous and beautiful seeing the glory of God is. It's worth leaving, dying on a cross in order to come back to. It's that good. It's that rich. It's that full of pleasure and joy and comfort and rest and peace. Okay? The only way there is through faith in Christ who did the work necessary to redeem you from your sin. Okay? So if you're here, you will not see the most spectacular glory and beauty and joy that there ever was, but will be kept away from it all eternity if you refuse to trust Jesus Christ. You will not get one taste of it. But if you do trust Christ, you will get it. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for help here. We pray that your hope in your Son would be ours and that you'd comfort us. God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.